This is an interview with Grave Huffer guitarist Richie Randall by Nick Perkel on Friday, July 31st, 2020. Now, Richie, can you tell me what it was like growing up in Joplin, Missouri? Yeah, sure, man. Uh, Joplin is a pretty interesting place. Um, we're right in the middle of the country, so um, it's kind of a cool location as far as, um, you know, growing up in an area that kind of has a lot going on in such a small town. I mean, we're only about 50,000 people, so, so it's fairly small, but you go down the highway north, south, east, or west for about an hour or so, and you're going to get into a pretty big city like Kansas City or Tulsa or uh, Springfield. A few more hours, you got St. Louis. Um, you go down south and you got Arkansas. Kind of a different uh, vibe down there. Um you know, it's called the natural state. So it's pretty, it's real pretty, literally. <laughs> and, uh, but they have a really cool scene in the Northwest area. And so we're kind of in the middle of all this action going on. So it's, it's a pretty cool place. Um, you know, I grew up, I mean, it's, it's, it's funny. It's kind of like quiet, but at the same time, there was always some, you know, stuff to do and, it's a uh, kind of a suburban type of atmosphere here. Um, you know, nothing like crazy major, like going on as far as, um, all the kids were like safe and, you know, we never had like a bunch of trouble or anything like that. And so it was a pretty cool place. Um, you know, as far as it relates to like music and stuff like that, we had a big punk scene here in the nineties. Um, it was kind of like part of the Ozark punk scene, which I was kind of, you know, talking about as far as all the other towns that surround us. Um, we were kind of in the middle of all that. So we just had shows wherever we could. And there was just so many different venues that were popping up that had all ages shows. So all the kids would come out and bands were just springing up left and right. And so it was really, really cool times. Um, that lasted for about 15 years or so and then it kind of fizzled out but um but now it's kind of weird as far as like the music scene goes um it kind of go ebbs and flows a little bit but it, it's still pretty solid so but yeah um and yeah there's lots of tornadoes and stuff <laughs> that that definitely affected um the band um in the mid-2000s we lost our house and our BAM space. It kind of, the tornado kind of fucked Joplin up pretty good in 2011. But, uh, yeah, it's pretty interesting to say the least. Now, what was it like as a young music fan um, for you just growing up and also eventually performing in bands? Um, my dad was, like, really into a lot of the stuff from the 70s, like, Led Zeppelin and The Who and Black Sabbath and uh, Deep Purple. Like, my parents named me after Richie Blackmore from Deep Purple. So, you know, they were, like, really into the whole music thing. And uh, he was he went to the Army uh, and was stationed in Germany in the late 60s. And um, he saw a bunch of bands back then. Like, he saw The Who and Led Zeppelin and Deep Purple and all that stuff when he was um, stationed in Germany in the Army. And he brought all that back with him. And being in the middle of the country again, it's um, it's kind of cool. But also at the same time, stuff gets to us a little slower as opposed to like the East Coast and West Coast. 
So um, we're kind of slow to get some of the music and um, just, you know, all the arts and stuff kind of filter their way in a little, little more slow. So when my dad came back from uh, Germany with all this new music, nobody in this town knew what the hell any of that stuff was really. So they thought he was kind of a weirdo. <laughs> and so um, crazy Donnie, what is he, you know, what is all this weird music? And I grew up with that stuff in the house as a little kid. So, and my dad would just blast it at like insane volume, you know, he was like a hippie. And um, so, yeah, they were always blasting all that old school, like classic rock and kind of proto metal and, and stuff like that. So, so that definitely had an impact on me and um, made me want to like do music and play guitar. And they bought me my first guitar in the lab. Uh, mid to late eighties, if I can remember right, they paid for guitar lessons for like five years or so, and that really helped train my ear and everything. So, so yeah, that, they were definitely supportive of me being a, a musician. So I'm I'm really glad I had parents that were like, <clears throat> you know, way into it and helped me out <clears throat> along the way. Excuse me. And then you know, going to school here and meeting kids that were into music as well and a lot of them were like people that were very socially awkward, <laughs> like me. You know, I never talked to anybody at school hardly. You know, I had a few select friends here and there. So yeah, they, you know, you just get to meet people by by basically like, hey, there's a kid with a morbid angel shirt. He's probably cool, you know. <laughs> so that was kind of how it went back then. So yeah, that that's pretty much how it all started anyway. Now, just thinking, like you're from like Missouri. How much of an influence? does Chicago have like on you guys? Like just cause you're saying like, you know, it takes some time for like the East coast and the West coast stuff to get to you guys. What about Chicago though? Chicago is that's about eight hour drive. Um, and we've played there a few times and dude, it's, it's pretty rad there. It's funny. Um, that's an interesting question and I've never really thought about it. Um, cause yeah, you know, all the music that goes through Chicago, it's what the third biggest city in the country. So yeah, that's a, that definitely is a, a valid point. I don't know. Um, <laughs> I feel like Chicago kind of melds with St. Louis in a little bit of a, a way, you know, because they're, it's not asked, you know, it's only like three hours or so from St. Louis. And so stuff from St. Louis still takes some time to get here. Cause it's all the way across the state. You know, we're in the extreme southwest uh, corner of Missouri. You know, right? I mean, like my house is literally only like four or five miles from Kansas and about 15 miles from Oklahoma. Um, Arkansas is a little further south, about 30 minutes or so, which is probably about 25, 30 miles. So, yeah, Chicago, um, you had Chicago and then like Memphis and like New Orleans. So blues was a really big thing here. If, if I guess if I had to really think about it. So yeah, the Chicago blues and, you know, St. Louis kind of had that going on too. And so the Kansas city actually was a little more even, I guess, famous for um, having the, that kind of music style going on. I don't know if you've ever heard of Max's Kansas city. Oh, yeah. It was a venue that, yeah, it was a big, big deal back then. And uh, a lot of bands went through there and played Max's. It's interesting that you bring that up and how that all kind of correlates with where we are. 
<laughs> I kind of had to think about it, but yeah, it totally makes sense that the North and the South kind of areas do filter their uh, influence here. So yeah, good question. Now tell me the history of your band Gravehuffer. Gravehuffer started in like 2000. Well, okay. <laughs> we started in 2008 and we were called Crom and Crom is from Conan the Barbarian. It was uh, Conan's deity there is God. We just had a hell of a time trying to find a cool name. And we, we stuck with Crom for a, about three years. And we ended up changing to Grave Huffer after the big tornado that came through here. Um, we went on hiatus for like seven months or so. And uh, we had nowhere to play. <laughs> you know, like the, it like blew half the town away. We were just kind of like, what the hell we do, do we do? And um, our bass player, Mike, he suggested we change the name and kind of start over. And, um, and you know, same band. We still had the same song. We just changed the name to Grave Huffer. And that came from a friend of ours that uh, he had a band. Or, well, I guess the band never really happened. But he had that name for a band he was trying to put together. And they were kind of a rockabilly kind of uh, a band. And um, that never ended up working out. And... I just remember Mike asking, Hey, we'd love to use that name for, for our band. And he's like, okay, man, uh, maybe if I can just, just throw me a free t-shirt every once in a while. So, so that's kind of how that all came about. But uh, Mike, myself and our drummer, Larry, were in a band called initial detonation. And this would have been from like 95 to about 2000. And we played just all over the country. We toured a couple times and played in Canada. And it was, it was a lot of fun in that band. And it was like a crust punk, I guess you'd call it. Uh, I know Europe calls it like anarcho punk, kind of like Discharge and Crass and that kind of stuff. Um, Amoebics, that you know, just the whole. I can't really think of any other stuff off the top of my head, but, uh, but yeah, it was like the kind of politically inclined, politically minded, but uh, the crusty stuff kind of has a little bit of like a metal influence, but it's still like totally punk rock, you know? Uh, so it's kind of like a mixture between hardcore punk, like black flag and, and then metal or thrash, you know, kind of stuff. So, so yeah, we ended up doing that. And then we kind of like did started families, I guess, you know, everybody got married and had kids and this would have been about early two thousands. And then about 2008 is when we all kind of decided, yeah, let's get back together and do the band, you know, let's get the band back together. And so we <laughs> we did that, and we ended up uh, getting a different singer and decided to kind of do a little bit more in the metal kind of vein, I guess. But it, it, it's definitely different than Initial Detonation, but you can hear some of what we did in that band in, in Grave Hover. We've been doing it for, gosh, going on 12 years now. It's kind of crazy. Now, tell me the current lineup of your band. Currently, we have uh, Jay Willis on drums, and we've... He's been our drummer for about a year. We had a kind of a spinal tap revolving <laughs> drum throne there for a couple of years. And um, then um, James was our singer up until like this February, this March, I believe. And so that was kind of, we weren't expecting that. And um, I guess he had just kind of grown apart from us and kind of grown just tired of doing the whole band thing. And I don't know, we're not real real sure why he decided to leave, but he ended up leaving. And we actually got a really good friend of his named Travis McKenzie to, to sing. And, um, we kind of 
eased him into the recording of the new album, which is what we were in the middle of doing when James quit, which, man, that was bizarre. Anyway, um, and then myself on guitar, and I do a little bit of singing, and then our bass player is Mike Gilgey. He pretty much does he does some of the art, and he does almost all the recording and mixing and stuff, and he's got a, a studio slash rehearsal space in his house. And so we that's pretty much where we get together to jam and record and all that stuff. And so he, he's the mastermind behind all that. As far as our drummer, Jay, he also sings, and he even wrote quite a few like riffs and stuff for the new album and so it's been a really cool like collaborative effort you know so it, we're, we're digging it right now how often do you guys practice and what has it been like lately we typically practice once a week on usually like on weekends typically sundays um we haven't practiced geez i mean we haven't had like an actual practice in, since oh my gosh it's been probably about four or five months. Um, we were kind of you know, busy recording and write, writing and recording this new record. So um, Black Doomba Records is, is putting that out. And we should have some big news coming up on that here anytime now within the next week or two. And uh, <clears throat> But since we were busy doing that, we didn't really practice per se. Uh, but we are going to be practicing for the first time in four or five months here, uh, here in a couple of days. It'll be this Sunday. We're going to have our first like full band practice. And um, I work at a university here in town and I'm, I'm the printer slash mail person. And so I printed up some like spiral bound, like lyric books for everybody. And so <laughs> I want us to be like ready to go since we're all doing some singing now. We're all going to have our, our lyrics ready and everybody's going to have their chops, you know, ready to go. Everybody's been practicing at home. So it's always kind of weird putting it all together at first. Sometimes you have a little bit of kind of funky, not growing pains, but just kind of getting used to doing it again since it's been a while, you know? So yeah, we're uh, really excited to, to start jamming again. I think with the recording of the new album during the whole pandemic thing, that was kind of a good thing for, you know, we were just lucky that we were in the middle of that process. If, it, if we weren't recording this new record, I'm not, I don't know. I really don't know how we would have handled practice. Now, can you pick out five albums that have influenced Grave Huffer the most? I know for me, um, if I had to pick five myself to influence Grave Huffer, well, I'll just have to, I'll probably have to start with like something Metallica related. James Hetfield's right hand is just really influential on myself. And then Master of Puppets was pretty much my first. Um, I mean, I remember when that came out and Battery came on. And I mean, that was like kind of a game changer for me. But also like Trey from Morbid Angel is a really big influence. It was kind of his crazy chaotic riff style. And then, um, so I would say ooh, probably Covenant. Covenant was Morbid Angel's Covenant. But then I also kind of like the heavy, like slow riffy stuff like it's hard to beat Black Sabbath and Tony Iommi. I mean, he's a, just a monster. Um, as far as the Black Sabbath album, I'll have to go with Volume Four. But then I also really like the three chord punk rock stuff. Um, I'd say Ramones are probably my favorite for that. Uh, I kind of like just the old school one, two, three, four, boom, boom, boom. You know, um, probably the Ramones' first album, just Ramones, and then a. Yes, 
probably Judas Priest Unleashed in the East, the, the live album. That was pretty much the album that made me want to be a musician. My dad had that in his record collection. I remember looking at the cover and seeing K.K. Downing with his flying V holding it in the air, and I thought that was badass. I'd never seen anything like it. and I was like, well, I wonder what this sounds like. So I put the record on, and Exciter came on, and I was like, holy crap. And I was like five years old, six years old. And so that was huge. So, yeah, that's my five. How did you develop your interest in history over time? History for me, like I don't really write lyrics for Grave Huffer, so it's a little harder question for me, more of a question for our old singer James or, or even Travis. But now we do, you know, the rest of us do kind of come up with subject matter and stuff like that. But I remember really liking history in school, and I always made A's in history. So, you know, I'm, it's definitely something that we're all into. I think just having pe- you know, your teachers in high school, when they're, they were really pas- passionate about the history of pretty much everything. So um, I never did go to college, and I kind of wish I would have just, for one, <laughs> taken all the cool, like, Western Civ classes and, and things like that. And, uh, my wife's a big history buff too, so I'm always asking her stuff. And you know, she's got her bachelor's um, in biology, but she had some really good history teachers that uh, teach at the university I actually work at. So she's always telling me stuff about all the uh, classes that she took and all the great professors she had. So yeah, I think a lot of it just has to do with the passion of the teachers. And so, you know, working in education—that's something that really. I think is very important. Um, like I said, it's a little little more difficult for me to answer that, but um, being as I don't really write the lyrics, but I think history is just, I think it's very pretty universally accepted that it's an interesting subject. I mean, there are probably some people that might, hey, I don't care about history, but, but I think for the most part, people are at least intrigued by it. So, so yeah, there you go. <laughs> now, tell me the personal take for your band on crafting the song Stalingrad's Cross? I do remember when we wrote that song, as far as like the music part, um, Mike and myself, we were, this was the, we wrote that in between searching for drummers because our original drummer, Larry Deerdorf had, had left, <clears throat> excuse me. And he, um, he just couldn't uh, play shows anymore because due to his job, but um, he was always on the road. But anyway, we were in the middle of looking for drummers and Mike and I were just basically like, well, we'll just get together at each other's house and, and just write some music. And I remember we wrote Stalingrad's Cross in Mike's bedroom at the time. And um, I'd been listening to a lot of the latest Judas Priest uh, Firepower album. So the main riffs to Stalingrad's Cross definitely have a Judas Priest kind of feel to them. And I uh, remember writing that and Mike, and I putting that song together, we took it to James, our singer, and the new drummer we were trying out at the time, named, his name was Matt Browning. James was like, man, this song's pretty different, man. He goes, it kind of reminds me of uh, a march or you know, going into battle. He goes, I've always wanted to write a song about the Battle of Stalingrad. So this was something that James had been thinking about for a while. I think he was just kind of waiting for the right music, and so when he heard that main riff that sparked his idea to write about that. And so 
we ended up putting the rest of the song together to kind of go along with how the battle took place, the actual fighting, and then the aftermath. As we're putting the song together, like recording-wise, we decided to use the melody from, it's called the uh, Volga Boatman, and it was a Russian, like, traditional song. And uh, we put the melody of that at the very end of the song to kind of pay tribute to the soldiers that were, they were fighting for, you know, basically ending Nazi Germany. So that's at the, at the very end, the melody you hear on, I'm playing like slide guitar, I believe there's this Ebo in there as well, which is this thing you hold over the strings that like a, makes a magnetic field and it vibrates the strings and it almost sounds like you're playing with a bow, like a violin bow or something. And so we layered all that up and, and used that melody. And it's kind of cool when people listen to it and they're like, hey, that sounds familiar. And <laughs> so we tell them what it is. And I'm like, wow, that really, really ties it all together. And um, we got a couple of our friends in a band, Sardis, that played the ripping guitar solos on it. And one of the guys starts with um, Flight of the Valkyries. And then the other guy played a German composition starting his solo. So we thought that would be cool to kind of clash and we put a lot of thought into it. So, uh, yeah, I hope that answers your question. For Demon Face, that was about Edgar Mordred. How do you first hear about Uh that story? Edward Mordrake was um, something that I, I think I read about him online or something. And um, it was also in this uh, show called American Horror Story and um, on Netflix. And he, uh, he's just in it like kind of briefly, but he had this parasitic twin in the back of his head, like a face. And Edward Mordrake called it his demon face. And so that's kind of where we got the title. And that was a, a song that I had suggested. So that was the, kind of my uh, impetus, I guess. And so I brought uh, that subject matter to the band. And James was like, yeah, I've heard of him. And he goes, send me some material about the guy and, and what we can get started on it. And then um, Mike and I had some riffs lying around that we thought would fit for that. And we thought it'd be cool to start out kind of slow and sludgy and kind of menacing, you know, because um, it's kind of, you know, this guy's got this parasitic twin that like, according to Edward, it, he quoted is quoted as saying it whispered things from hell to uh, in his ear. And he would, not be able to sleep at night and uh, it would laugh when he would cry and it would cry when he would laugh. And it was basically always the opposite emotion <laughs> for uh, the Edward was. And so he really just, it just drove him crazy. And um, when we were writing the song, we thought it would be cool to like increase the intensity toward the middle. And that would be basically the point to where Edward just lost his mind and so that's basically what the music and the lyrics do as they increase in intensity and, and Edward's just going crazy. And it was kind of fun at the end where there's like this laughing and crying and all the guys in the band kind of got together and we tracked a bunch, like a whole bunch of tracks of us laughing and crying and saying crazy stuff. And we kind of put it in the, in the, at the end of the song. And, you know, we were kind of thinking, you know, at the end of master puppet, there's all that, that, laughing and stuff and we thought it'd be kind of cool to to do that and plus kind of pay homage to 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 that song 
so yeah, that was pretty much where that came from and how that came to be and how we recorded it. And, um, it was definitely a lot of fun to do. Now, you ever take a look at folklore and things like Weird New Jersey for inspiration? Um, I'm not sure what Weird New Jersey is. What is that? Okay, check it out. It's kind of like a statewide publication for New Jersey, just like with different random folklore and old wives' tales. Like, it's mm-hmm. there's this place called Clinton Road, and it's they say that there's like Satanists down there and stuff like that. But I mean, it's just like one time somebody actually dumped a dead body there. There's other different kind of like curiosity type thing. It's kind of like the type of thing that. Mm-hmm teenagers go to to get in trouble and it's kind of like if yeah. a cop sees you on that road they're going to give you a ticket for trespassing because it's a private road and it's like i don't really right. know or i can't really tell you exactly what goes on there but it's it's like a local legend type place yeah um we've got something similar to that here it's called the spook light or the ozark spook light the hornet spook light there's there's different names for it it's funny i live on the street and it's called Shipperdecker Avenue. And if you keep going south, oh, only a few blocks, it turns into Coyote Drive. And, and that also turns into Highway 43. And you go about five miles, six miles south of my house on the same road I live on. You take a right in Hornet, Missouri. It's just this tiny, tiny, like, you know, 50 people live there kind of thing. And there's a dirt road there that it runs into. And that's where the spook light is. And it's been said that it's like ball lightning or it's reflections from cars on the highway and all this other stuff. But scientists have been out there and they have a museum or I don't know, they used to have a museum that kind of talked about it. And there's like, you're talking about legends. The legend is that it's a headless, a headless guy looking for his head and it's his lantern. It's the spook light. And it's it's pretty interesting. Like if you were to Google it on, on on Google or whatever, you'll you'll find a whole bunch of stuff about it. We will probably write something about that on the next record because we've been talking about it, and um, it's definitely something that piques our interest. And I've personally seen it, the spook light before. Uh, it scared the crap out of me. I mean, I was like twelve or thirteen. And um, the two people I was with, my cousin and his girlfriend, you know, she was driving, and um, she flipped her shit and <laughs> turned around and, like, peeled out of there, basically, because it was starting to come toward us. And they're like, yeah, we've had enough of this. But uh, I was like, oh, no. <laughs> Even at that age, I was like, I was scared, but at the same time, very intrigued. So, And I've been out there a couple times since and haven't seen it Um Usually you have to be super quiet for it to like come out, but uh, yeah, nobody's ever been able to tell what what this thing is. But it, it's it's there and it's real, but you just nobody knows what it is. It's, it's just a mystery. We don't really have any other stuff like that here, as far as like curiosities concerned. Um, we do have the Bonnie and Clyde house. Um, that's like two blocks away from my in-laws. <laughs> It's funny, the guy that runs our le- record label, Black Duma Records, uh, his name's Tommy Stewart, and he was in a band called Hollow's Eve um, in the 80s. They were signed to Metal Blade Records. They toured with Slayer and Motorhead, and uh, they were kind of a big deal. But anyway, him and uh, the, the drummer for the band he's in now, Dire Wolf, they came here and played a show with us uh, last November, 
and he him and his drummer stayed at that Bonnie and Clyde house. You can you can actually stay there and pay a small fee. And he said it was pretty cool. Um, he, like the bullet holes are still on the wall where they had a shootout with the cops. And you could see where uh, Clyde was carving into the floor with his knife. And Tommy said, he, he goes, I was sitting right there and I could see all my knife carvings right under my feet. And he goes, there's like a diary that was left there. And he goes, I was reading through the diary. And kind of, kind of interesting um, for sure as far as that goes. Um, we also have Route 66, and there's been songs and all kinds of stuff about that, and that's like a mile north of our house. But yeah, it's kind of an interesting place, for sure. What three Grave Huffer songs that you composed are you most proud of and why? Well, I guess I'll start with the first album. Um, I'll just go with Inherit the Wasteland. <clears throat> Excuse me. I feel like that was the first song that all of us contributed to for the first time. It wasn't just like, this guy brought this song in, this guy brought this song in. That was like the first song that we all kind of wrote together. And you can kind of tell because there's, it ebbs and flows and tempo changes and it's, it's pretty cool. And I also got the, it was my first guitar solo on an album. So I was pretty excited about that. We'll go with the Your Fault album next. And I would say probably Chains Around You. That was like one of the first songs we had that, uh, had like clean guitars in it and clean singing and um, one of our first I guess weird songs so yeah that that's one that we usually close our live set with and it always people are always like wow that song's awesome you know so people seem to like it it's a, a crowd favorite I'll go with something from the new album there's a song called Sights to the Sky that's about uh, Buzz Aldrin uh, you know one of the first men on the moon it's got just all kinds of stuff going on on that song. Like all these, just it's just riff city. We also have um, Chewy from the band Voivod playing a solo on it. And that's definitely a very, very proud moment. So I'll, those are my three. What kinds of things is Grave Huffer doing right now to remain active considering the pandemic situation? Well, we're just trying to um, remain active on our social media and um, trying to um, just promote what's going on with the band as far as our new album and stuff like that. Like, we haven't really, you know, we haven't told anybody what the title is or revealed the artwork or anything like that yet. But we, you know, everybody knows we have a new album coming out. And we always try to uh, come up with new merchandise ideas. you know, sometimes I'll do Facebook Live videos and stuff like that on our page. You know, kind of talk to people and let them know what's going on. You know, maybe play snippets of the new album on my guitar or whatever. You know, we just try to uh, always make, you know, at least one post a day. Just letting people know that, hey, we're still here. We're still active. Uh, check out this or that. You know, we'll, we've got a lot of merchandise and stuff. So, you know, we'll promote the, the merchandise or... Uh, We'll post a picture or like we did a photo shoot here a couple of weeks ago and that garnered a lot of attention. So it was kind of fun going, getting together all four of us and taking some pics around town. Um, Cause these pictures are going to be included with our three or four month promotion that we're going to do for the new record. So it's a lot of stuff ramping up. And then of course this weekend we'll be practicing for the first time and, I'm sure we're going to film that and 
put that out there. And so, yeah, we're, um, we just try to, you know, post a little something here or there every day. And, um, we had face masks made and those have been kind of a not attention grabber, but they've, they've been something that people have, have to wear masks due to, you know, whatever, uh, mandates or whatever this, their state or city has, you know, people, man, I need a cool mask. You guys got masks. And I'm like, yeah, dude. So, <laughs> you know, we'll, we got them for pretty cheap. And, uh, like my work, for instance, I have to wear a mask at work. So they're cool with me wearing a gray puffer mask. <laughs> so, so it, it's pretty cool to, uh, be able to just share little things like that. You know, people will send us pictures and stuff and we'll share them out and, like, hey, I've got my grave huffer mask today, and you know, we'll, we share people's posts about them buying records or buying guitar picks and just stuff like that. So, what's the situation like in Missouri for performing concerts right now? Yeah, there's really not any shows going on. Uh, I mean, there there have been, I think, a few here and there. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. There's a place here called Blackthorn Pizza and Pub, and that's the place where we tend to play most of our local shows. I talked to the owner here two or three weeks ago, and she said that there was a show and, like, only five people came. And people are just kind of leery still, and it's kind of hard to blame them. But she said that their drink and food sales have been just through the roof, so... That's good that people are still out there supporting local businesses, but still being careful about, you know, gathering in groups, large groups or whatever. So it, it's been kind of odd as far as that goes. There's no, um, there's no like mandates or laws or anything to my knowledge about having shows. I think it's just people just, they're just not ready for it yet. So, and that, that's just on the people that are, um, you know, that's, that's their own free will, but, they want to come out or not, you know, shows are still happening. It's just people just aren't, they're just not ready or they're not, they just don't feel safe, I guess. Now, I've heard you're a big history buff. What is the absolute coolest thing you have related to history? Yeah. Um, for myself, um, honestly, um, my grandfather, he has this trombone from like, like the late 1800s, like 1890-something. He had that in the family for I don't know how long. And um, it's like a, <clears throat> a platinum-plated trombone. A little smaller than a normal trombone, but it's got, like, it's got a carving in it. And you were mentioning Chicago. Um, the manufacturer was a Chicago manufacturer. And um, I tried to see about getting it fixed, but um, the everybody's afraid to touch it because they're afraid it'd fall apart, I guess. So we've kind of just got it cleaned up and left it intact. But that's definitely one thing that, um, <laughs> it's pretty wild. Actually, my oldest son, Zach, he actually played that trombone on one of our songs. Pretty much what he did was just played a couple of notes and, uh, harmonized them. It sounds like a really evil, like train horn or something. It's kind of cool. But it's on, on our song, uh, No Boundaries, No Borders, which was on the uh, vinyl version of our Your Fault record. So, yeah, it's kind of cool to, ha <clears throat> to have something that old, you know, over 100 years old, and then have my son play it and have it be on our record. So that, that was definitely a, a cool little tidbit. And then knowing that my grandfather fought in World War II in Korea, and that was something that 
was a part of of him. So, um, so yeah, that thing's been all over the world almost. <laughs> Final words. Yeah, yeah. Um, we've got this new record coming out, and um, it's going to be probably out in the first of January. And here in a couple of weeks, man, we're going to ramp up promotion for it and a pre-sale, and we're going to reveal the art, the album title, and we'll have a new song for people to listen to and a, a, a video as well. So, so yeah, we can't wait to get that started, and we're really happy that we're with Black Doomba Records and that they're releasing it. We appreciate everybody's support, and I want to thank you, Nick, for having me on your podcast. What's the name of this album, by the way? Well, I can't reveal that. So. Okay. <laughs> but but it, it will be revealed uh, here in a couple weeks. I've been sworn to secrecy, man. Sorry. Okay. I appreciate it. Now, no problem. This has been an interview with Grave Huffer guitarist Richie Randall by Nick Perkel on Friday, July 31st, 2020.